I'm Joshua Kagey from The Christian Citizen, and this is Justice, Mercy, Faith. In this episode, Christian Citizen editor Curtis Ramsey Lucas sits down with Deborah Jackson and Marvin McMickle for a conversation about their respective contributions to the book In This Together, Ministry in Times of Crisis, on what we've learned about the church, our communities, and ourselves during the pandemic and other crises our nation has faced over the last year. Here now is Curtis Ramsey Lucas. Okay, we're going to begin this session of In This Together Tuesdays uh, with Dr. Deborah Jackson and Dr. Marvin McMickle. Dr. Deborah Jackson is Dean of the Business School at Worcester Polytechnic Institute, a premier STEM-based institution recognized for project-based education that integrates the theory and practice of management and prepares students to assume positions of leadership in an increasingly global business environment. Her book, Meant for Good, Fundamentals in Womanist Leadership, is available from Judson Press. Dr. Marvin McMickle is the retired president of Colgate Rochester Crozer Divinity School, pastor emeritus of Antioch Baptist Church in Cleveland, Ohio, and Professor Emeritus of Preaching at Ashland Theological Seminary in Ashland, Ohio. He is the author of 17 books, including his latest, Let the Oppressed Go Free, Exploring Theologies of Liberation, available from Judson Press. Both are contributors to In This Together, Ministry in Times of Crisis, a collection of essays that explores what we are learning during the pandemic and other crises we have faced in the past year about God, about ourselves, about being church, being neighbors, and about our country and world. Today's conversation, one in a series of three, including March 25th with Greg Mamala and Angela Goral and June 8th with Matthew Krebin, Margaret Marcusen, and Michael Wolf. Deborah's chapter, The God Who Heals Amid Crises, explores the ways in which crisis serves to sharpen what we already know about God. Marvin's chapter, Will Our Union Be a Victim of Crisis, asks, will we still be the United States of America after the threat of COVID-19 has passed? I'm happy to welcome you both to this episode of In This Together Tuesdays. Thank you very much. Thanks to be with you and always with Dr. Deborah Jackson. Oh, thank you. You're so kind. I'm just glad to be here uh, in this august company. (laughs) Well, it's good to have you both. And my first question really is just um, how are you both doing? Well, I can start. Yeah, go ahead. You know, it's uh, it's interesting. People think uh, I, I'm I'm not being truthful when I say that I'm an introvert. Um, but I find that uh, there are a lot of pastors who are introverts. There's something about being able to go deep within that's very helpful for ministry. And uh, so being introverted as I am, being home and with family has been very restorative and special for me, um, but it's formed me to be able to be um, a sharper advocate, I believe. And so um, it, it's been a good time. Dr. McMickle, how are things with you? 
I'm doing fine. Uh, my wife and I are both doubly vaccinated. We uh, we use the Moderna uh, vaccine. So we've managed to avoid uh, being infected by uh, the virus. The church has been very aggressive. First, we were a testing site for the neighborhood, and then we become a multiple occasion uh, vaccination site for mm. persons who want to be vaccinated. Uh, our frustration has been that we cannot get as many people to be vaccinated as we have vaccinations available. So I'm doing fine. Um, I'm back at the church. I was telling you and Dr. Jackson and some others before we started that I've been called back as the interim pastor at Antioch. So I'm both the interim pastor and the pastor emeritus. This has got to be an unusual combination, but I'm doing fine and uh, enjoying as much retirement as I can squeeze in. Well, that's good to hear. I'm, I'm so glad you're both doing well. Um, I wanted to start off with a couple of questions, a little bit of conversation about um, leadership and leadership development before we kind of dig into the content of the book itself. You are both uh, leaders within American Baptist life. Uh, Dr. McMickle, what does leadership in times of crisis look like? It looks like what we do not see in Washington right now. Uh, it looks like people who have a sense of where an institution ought to be, a clear sense of the institution's own self-declared uh, mission and identity, uh, some sense of where God, at least for the church, is leading us in these times, and then the courage to uh, start moving the institution in, in that direction. So I think I think leadership is one calling people to be faithful to the core tenets of whatever the institution is, in this case, American Baptist churches or our local associations or our local churches. And then reminding us that God needs us in some particular ways in particular times, uh, for instance, I've had to figure out how to be a pastor remotely. Mm. How, how do you do funerals um, online? How do you do uh, premarital counseling by Zoom? Or how do you do these things with six feet of separation? I've been doing weddings and funerals since the uh, pandemic started, but you have to learn. And, and most importantly, how do we include those members of our church who are not technologically connected? And so the best they can do is get a phone number and call in. So, you know, be true to the institution, be true to your own values, read the times in which you are uh, alive and at work, and have just a little courage, just a, just a little courage to risk something uh, in order to move the ball forward. Dr. Jackson, what do you see? How, what does is, what is leadership in times of crisis look like to you? Well, I, I agree so much with uh, Dr. McMickle, and the, the, the shortcut word I might use is to talk about an adaptive capacity that, that 
that this crisis has required adaptation and those who survive are the ones who are able to adapt. We had to learn quickly that, you know, if you couldn't accept, you know, your offering via online measures or means, your church wasn't going to have the money to pay the continuing obligations. I mean, we had to adapt, right? And those adaptations meant who was going to function and who was not, who was going to flourish and who was not. But but that adaptation, there was an opportunity, an invitation. So, so leadership, I've always said it's that, that adaptive capacity to bring people together in order to learn so that they might make progress on confronting challenges. It requires us to bring people together, people that we might not have included in the past, to think differently about what we're trying to do in order to make progress. And so everything that have we've been thrown shows us a way of leadership that touches on all of those points in the church. I think about the times, you know, as a pastor, when I didn't need people to help me plan a Sunday morning worship because I knew how to do that. But now you've got to have, you know, videographers and you have to have your musicians that are doing different things online. And I've got to have somebody editing a sermon and putting that together so that we can make that available. So now a whole new different group of people are together. But because we've done that adaptation, what we have has the potential to reach so many more people than we've ever reached before. And I think that that's just a way of God, that Mm -hmm. God meant for us to blow the doors, the walls open on what we were doing to be able to reach God's people so that God could reconcile us to God's Mm -hmm. self. Mm -hmm. Have you, you, uh, either of you, been surprised by how quickly the church was in large measure able to adapt? I mean, I, I think of conversations I've had in my own congregation about live streaming and and these kind of technological upgrades that were conversations going on for years. And then suddenly, yeah, everything shut down. We have to do this. And I mean, I think by and large, uh, people made some pretty remarkable adjustments. And, and even yourself, Dr. McMichael, as you say, you know, after a long career in in ministry, having to learn how to do all these things remotely, uh, socially distanced. Has that been a surprise to you? Yeah, the the thing that was most surprising, in addition to the fact that people were able to make the personal technological adjustments, in other words, they figured out how to call into Zoom, or they figured out how to access the website, or they have figured out that the sermons are taped in the morning or, or, or played in the morning, they don't have to watch it live anymore. They can sleep through the morning and go to YouTube and catch the service anytime they want. So people are finding new ways to gather. But the thing that was most surprising, you'll, you'll, you'll get a kick out of this. I tried to get the church to do online giving for years. I tried to get them to say, you know, if we just use Givelify or Tithely or some other app, it'd be so much easier. Oh, there was just enormous 
mm. resistance to the idea of online giving. Don't you know, as Deborah Jackson has just said, if it wasn't for online giving, there'd be no Antioch Baptist Church, and they'd just fall in right in line with it. So, yeah, I'm surprised that online giving has taken on with our church uh, as quickly and as broadly as seems to be the case. Yeah, you know, I, I feel the same way. You know, I, I'm a technologist. I, I was a software engineer and a manufacturing engineer wow. before, you know, acknowledging my call to ministry. And so I have always been trying to introduce technology into the church. Um, and, and, and no one wanted to do it. It was just whether it was online giving or or having, you know, video screens in the church or being able to do kind of, you know, video conferencing even before any of this happened. Uh, But, you know, a good crisis, you never can let it go to waste. So we've been able to move the church leap years. And I pray that we will recognize and keep some of these advances because you know you think you talk about giving people give when they show up in church but when they decide to take the summer off you know or they they take off the week because it's raining too hard or snowing too hard they don't usually make up that giving yeah you know so so these are things that you you could have this. And I was trying to encourage people, you could pay your monthly tithe and have that just automatically come whether you were in church or not. Yeah. Praise be to God. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So we need to keep those things and we need to encourage people to keep those things. Yeah. Yeah. One last point, if I might. Mm-hmm. Um, my And Dr. Jackson just referenced that. I don't think we can go back to church as before without losing the people who we have brought on with this technological advancement. We've got people, I do a Friday morning Bible class from 10 to 11. When I did that Bible class in the church, when I was the pastor, I would attract 15, maybe 20 people. Uh, We're now averaging between 60 and 65, Friday morning at 10 o'clock. You need to give the the, the Eight different states. (laughs) Eight different states. Right. And people who listen to us on Sunday morning listen to us from 12 different states. So if we if we don't maintain this technology, then we're going to lose the kind of expansion that Dr. Jackson just referred to in terms of reaching a wider audience with the message of the gospel. Uh, so I think, yeah, I think um we've learned how to do this and i think we have to keep doing this if we're going to continue to have the kind of ministry into which we have grown in the last year and i guess a a follow-up to that would be how do we uh if we maintain you know the folks are talking about this um this kind of hybrid reality going forward, right? Where where we're not bound by time or or even location in terms of the reach that we have. And I guess a question I have um, is how do we how do we integrate those two things? How do we uh, have a congregation that is dispersed in that kind of a way, but also connecting online with a congregation that is physically uh, present? Um, I think that's a real 
question or challenge going forward is how do we how do we integrate those two things so they're not really separate uh they're working together well if i'm if i might Mm -hmm. you will notice this in churches that are doing this well that have gone back or or are at least hybridized so what's happening is that the pastor might be preaching but then you know while he's saying to you know the congregation that's gathered you know tell your neighbor neighbor whatever you know whatever parlance we're doing he'll say hey and if you're online in the chat or she'll say hey if you're online on the chat say you know type in tell your neighbor (laughs) whatever (laughs) so it's a way to engage both constituencies, the online and the in-person. And we have to keep talking to be able to bring people along because nobody wants to be kind of a spectator. They right. want to be engaged. I mean, that's why, you know, you, you you look at that little light in your computer so that you're making eye contact with the people who are on Facebook Live. Put something in the chat. Tell people that you're here so we know that you're engaged. Ask a question so we might incorporate that in the conversation. But that's what we have to keep doing. Yeah. Um, I mentioned my Bible class. Let me tell you one of the things that I've tried to do to make sure that it is not a spectator sport. And I appreciate Dr. Jackson's uh, uh, reference to that. Because there are so many different versions of the Bible and because uh, English language translations, I should say, and because I don't know the versions that are being used while I'm working from the NIV, which is my standard text. I, I try to get people who are listening in to read verses. And then I say, now I want to hear that same verse in three or four other versions that others of you are, are using. So we can all hear what the word is saying. King James Version, New Living Translation Version, New International Version, Some folks use the Message Bible. Some folks use the Good News Bible. So if you get people to read themselves out loud uh, their versions, and then you get other folks to read the same verse from different translations, you tend to get a lot more exchange going on. Hmm. And then when we do our outdoor services, we've we've been meeting in the parking lot from time to time. So instead of saying, tell your neighbor, I'll say, honk your horn. If you love the Lord, honk your horn. And sometimes I think we're waking folk up in the neighborhood because of all the horns that are honking. One of our ministers actually brought a shofar, uh, an old Jewish ram horn, and started blowing the ram horn in the parking lot. Uh, Yeah, there are ways, I think, to uh, get folks engaged, but you have to work at it. You got to be creative, I think. Um, And this won't last forever. You know, I mean, I think we will be going back. Yeah. Uh, but as long as you have to maintain social distance, a church the size of Antioch cannot go back with all of us there. Mm. There's not enough space for all of us to be there six feet apart. We were shoulder to shoulder as it was. So I don't know how long it's going to take us to all get back, but I don't think all of us are ever going to come back. Mm-hmm. I think some folks are going to just come and go on YouTube. <laughs> That's just going to be the new the new normal. Right, right. Dr. Jackson, you have, um, you are an advocate for lifelong learning. You've been the director of the Lifelong 
Learning Center at Yale. Um, what is lifelong learning? How structured does it need to be? Uh, what are some skills and practices that you feel are critical to lifelong learning? Curiosity, wonder, and desire to keep growing, you know, and one of the things that's so exciting about this time is that, again, you know, a pandemic, never allowing that good crisis to go to waste, has moved us to a place where online learning is so accessible and it could be as um, as simple as I'm going to, you know, listen to a Facebook live presentation or I'm going to do a sprint. We've been talking about, for example, in the in the context of, biz, of business schools is could we do sprints um, as far as, you know, and that's like a software engineering type of terminology, but six week intensive course where someone would learn something and then maybe earn a badge or some sort of a credential that you know, they might just put it on their LinkedIn profile that says that they learned this new thing. Mm-hmm. But but that, you know, that ability, all of that functionality is available now. And it's as simple as as a, you know, Google search um, and and just a matter of what do I want to learn today? What am I what am I interested in or what podcast can I listen to that I might, you know, as I'm on my walk or on my drive, I'm I might, you know, listen to something that I didn't know. And so it just starts with your own wonder and curiosity. And another, um, turning to the book a little bit, um, you write in in there about um, some ways in which um, we deny the sovereignty of God. And the question relates to technology because you talk about um, technology in our own context of um, consuming and and, uh, just the pervasive nature of of communications technology in our lives, um, digital technology. And that, I think, over the past year has become so consuming. I mean, we're working online, we're going to school online, um, and we're learning so much in that. But how do you, but that can crowd out the point you make, um, our communication with God, our time with God. So how do you um, find balance in life between that life and digital space life and physical space how do you how do you maintain some balance in that mix it's really hard (laughs) it's 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 really difficult because you know the thing about technology is it's so pervasive um that if you stop and really ponder it it's it's frightening because who among us haven't called ourselves innocently searching for something on the web only to find that the Facebook ads that now are presented to us are exactly what we were searching for on the web Mm. because all of the websites have tracking cookies that know where you've been and what you were doing so that you can be bombarded and it and it really feels invasive and and uncomfortably so and so for me that becomes a real trigger to shut some things down to turn off to make sure that i am just 
listening to God. And there's a, there's a balance because, you know, Sunday mornings, I can tell you that I, I listen to about six different sermons on a Sunday while I'm walking anywhere from eight to 10 miles, just walking and clicking from sermon to sermon. But then I make sure that I take time to just sit silently so that I can hear what God wants me to take from all of that. And so it's that that rhythm of on and off that I think makes a difference. Mm. Another um, question that I had, you, you, you start off the chapter talking about um, the religious instruction that we receive from an early age uh, about God as omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent. And you suggest that that doesn't really prepare us well for times of crisis. What um, understanding or conception of God do we need most in, in times of crisis? We need to know that God is personal. And sometimes that 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 aspect of, you know, that what we learn, and this is how I started the chapter, what we learn in Sunday school is is we're we're cognitively processing that. And we can't, but we cannot have a cognitive understanding of God because it's limited, right? And we, you know, sometimes it's in the midst of that crisis that we start to realize and you know and this comes and i talk about this in the chapter you know that's that's it's my black church experience where you know god is a way maker and god is the one that 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 exalts the valleys and and lowers the mountains and makes the plain the crooked straight and and the the plain uh, you know an oasis for us i mean and and the way that it gets translated in the hebrew and i talk about this that god is what tomorrow demands he's god is everything that we need in the moment but but crisis is what sometimes sharpens that realization that God is. God is that source. And so that's that's the, the trajectory from head to heart that has to happen. And, and I think that crisis in the midst of asking, you know, why has thou forsaken me mm-hmm. is where we start to find God because we are now receptive. Talk about lifelong learning. There's a receptivity to hearing God and understanding God in that moment. Dr. McMickle, your chapter begins with this question. Um, will we still be the United States of America after the threat of COVID-19 has passed. How would you answer that question today uh, now that the threat is at least subsiding? Yeah, I think we're at more of a risk now Mm. in the post-vaccination stage. In other words, we've moved from testing and and, uh, infection rates and death rates to trying to reopen, trying to get back to normal. We still have, I think, sectors of the country that have rejected vaccination as a strategy. 
we still have governors, for instance, in Texas, who are saying to school teachers and administrators in various urban districts, you've got to go back. Um, you've got to disregard face masks, disregard social distancing, go back to things as normal. Um, I think the last two or three months of life in this country, driven in part by COVID, driven in part by the politics of COVID, driven in part by the politics of division, generally speaking, have made me more concerned about the future of this democracy than I have been in my lifetime. Uh, I never thought at the height of the civil rights movement hmm. that the nation was anywhere near a schism. Mm -hmm. That's because there was never a time when 50% of the nation believed that the sitting president was illegitimate uh, or believed that QAnon was as valid a philosophy of life as the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I do wonder whether our nation is going to survive not just COVID, but the COVID era of the last two years. Uh, there seems to be, in my mind, um, a pretty systematic attempt to rewrite American history, mm. uh, to redefine who are American citizens. And it's going to take an awful lot of effort by an awful lot of people uh, to bring this country back together again. Um, you know, when, when I'm, you know, you know me, so I just use names. When people like Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene become the front face mm. of a major political party, we are in serious, serious trouble. Another point that you make in the chapter, um, as we think about inequities, you note the effects of this virus uh, have been made worse by centuries of neglect right. by this nation toward parts of its population. Um, and as divided as we continue to be, do you have hope um, that we'll address those long-standing inequities uh, that led to such disparate health outcomes during well, the pandemic for African-Americans yeah. and Native Americans in particular? Let me come back to, uh, to, to Deborah Jackson's earlier uh, observations about Isaiah 40. <clears throat> and every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill made low, crooked places made straight, rough places made plain. When mm. preachers lose hope, they are purposeless. Mm. Uh, we are obligated to continue to believe that when we cannot see the way forward, when we cannot imagine the solution, when it seems to it seems to us that things are all lined up against us, it is in those moments, as she said, that we have to turn to the God who brought us through the last time it looked that way. Mm. So I, I have no doubt that we will survive this. What I, what I doubt is that we're going to survive it without some difficulties, mm -hmm. some struggles. Uh, we, we, see the, we see the manifestation of the struggles every day. Voter suppression, uh, assaults on the nation's capital, a rewriting of American history so that school boards are being instructed 
not to teach critical race theory. Um, so you might, I think we're going to get through it because God is still on, in charge and God has not released God's sovereignty. There's the, Dr. Jackson's mm -hmm. word. She's not released God's sovereignty, but there's still free will. And somehow the exercise of our free will pushes God's sovereignty right to the breaking point because we just get so far afield. Um, but I, I believe that we'll close these gaps as good people prevail. Uh, healthcare, education, the end of food deserts, uh, access to and a willingness to take the vaccine. Um, we have to keep talking about it. We have to keep pointing to it. But I, it, I'm obligated to be hopeful. Uh, people expect me to be hopeful. When I'm not hopeful, when I say, you know, folks, I think we've come to the end of the line, that's a bad sign. Yeah. So uh, I have to be the last person on board. Uh, no matter who else gets off the train, i got to be the last person on board mm -hmm. because it's my job to uh, breathe hope into a hopeless situation. Amen. I, I, I often think of that distinction between optimism and hope, right? Yeah. We could have less optimism, but we always have hope. That's right. Um, yeah, we'll see it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Doctor Jackson, do you have any thoughts about about that? Well, I'm 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 on board. I'm in that amen corner, absolutely, yeah. because uh, because we do have to have hope, and you know, and and it's a fine line that that we as preachers walk because we do want to hold the systems accountable. We do have to speak out and cry violence as necessary. We do need to confront the powers that be, but at the same time, we need to speak a word of hope that the God who was with us will continue to be with us and will prevail because in the end we win. Yeah. Yeah, Dr. McMichael, you you mentioned uh, the uh, the blatant attempt to you know rewrite history, and um, I think it's even um, not so much the rewriting of history as the failure to even learn. Yeah, <laughs> from our history, right? I mean, here we are sitting and talking, and this is uh, the one hundred. Uh, years since the Tulsa massacre uh, yesterday and today um, when uh, mobs of white residents, many of them deputized and provided weapons by city officials, attacked black residents and businesses in the Greenwood district of Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, and, and that's a history that uh, for so many years was suppressed, uh, wasn't yeah. even a, allowed to be a part of the official account of what happened in Oklahoma by, by officials in Tulsa and in Oklahoma. Um, I guess my question is, how do we how do we move forward when we won't even take an honest account of of our past? Yeah, I, I think um, you have to just be persistent. Yeah. You just have to keep telling your own story. You just have to keep showing up and saying, no, that's not what happened or no, that is what happened. Uh, and we're not going to be silenced. Here's my concern, and I, I say this with, with much regret. I think that I, I'm a Democrat. I'm a progressive wing member of the Democratic Party. So let me just get that on the record. 
Um, I'm concerned that the, the most extreme members of the opposition party are far more passionate, mm -hmm. far more committed to the agenda that they've got in mind for the future of this country than are the persons uh, who are the targets of that agenda. They are strategizing while we're sleeping. You know, they they are organizing at midnight while we're, you know, doing something else. They're now targeting state boards of education. They've started with the White House. They've gone to the Congress. They've gone to the state legislatures. They've gone to the city councils. Now they want to go and target state boards of education and local school boards in order to determine what the curriculum can and cannot be and how history will and will not be taught so that whole sections of American race history will simply be buried. Let me give you a quick example. I had a friend from Alabama, he's now deceased, but he was raised in Alabama in the 1930s and 40s. He kept his American history, his Alabama state history book, the history of Alabama. And he asked me to find Booker T. Washington in the index. Well, you'd expect to find Booker T. Washington in the index of a history of Alabama, you know, Tuskegee Institute, Tuskegee Airmen, made sense. Page 158, it said, you'll find Booker T. Washington. Strange, it's just one page, but page 158. I then turned to page 158, and guess what I found? Page 157 and 159. <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't torn out. It was never there. Wow. It, was, it was overlooked. It was, it was bypassed. That's where we're headed. Yeah. Unless we keep pressing... We're going to have history as told by a particular portion of the country, uh, leaving out any story that they don't want to have told about Native Americans, any story about uh, Asian Americans, mm -hmm. any story about African Americans, any story about any sector of our culture and country that does not conform to their worldview. I'm, I'm, I'm grievously concerned, but I think we just have to be in the face of those who are trying to do this, uh, either with our sermons or our, or our writings or our petitions or our physical presence at public meetings. You just have to show up and show out. Mm. Dr. Jackson, you wrote an article for the Christian Citizen uh, in September of last year that really connects here um, about the musical Hamilton, uh, and you asked the question, who tells your story? Um, and I guess my question is, how do we tell our story when others are working to actively suppress that story? How do we, how do, we do that effectively, I guess? You know, one of the things that I think is important to note about people of color is that our, our histories are often oral. Mm. So it's about telling story. Yeah. And that as we tell our story, then we start to spark interest and engagement because, you know, the, I mean, we're storytellers. You attract people with story. I was just telling my son, um, my 
you know, my family was, you know, part of that great mass migration of Blacks from the South to the North for better jobs. But they were also a part of the story of Blacks from the South fleeing violence. Mm. You know, my family was run off of land in Tennessee by the Klan because it was good land that they wanted. And so, you know, I don't have a lot of details because it very much to to Dr. McMichael's point, our story was omitted. So not only did the majority not want to tell the story, but those of us in, in our ancestry, our history who were oppressed, didn't want to tell the story either. You know, the, there was repercussions potential for violence by continuing to stir up trouble, as my grandfather used to say. So, you know, they they allowed a lot of this history to die with them rather than bring their children into risk or harm. So but I'm telling my son about his now, you know, great, great grandfather who was actually enslaved. And now my son is using technology to go back and research in the annals of, you know, Tennessee history about, you know, could we find out about our land and that what we used to have? I mean, you know, this is an 18 year old who's now engaged because we told a story and that those, you know, it's, it's, you know, we used to sing that old song in Baptist, white Baptist churches. It only takes a spark to get a fire going. Well, well, guess what? It's a spark, but now that spark is searching to figure out whether he can find out something else and other people are excited. And now a new generation knows a story that they weren't telling. So, you know, that's what we have to do. It's that show up, show out, be persistent and learn. So, you know, one other story, because, you know, we're Baptist preachers. What are we going to do? Tell stories. I the the AAA affiliate of the Red Sox just moved to Worcester, Massachusetts from Pawtucket, Rhode Island. And they took an underproducing brownfield in Worcester, Massachusetts, and now have built the most expensive AAA ballpark in the country. And the, the owners were talking to the residents about how they might engage and bring Latinx and, and African-American people to the ballpark. And I met with the leadership and I said, you know what, I don't care about black promotion days. I care about economic development. Millions of dollars have been spent in Worcester, Massachusetts, to create this ballpark? How do we make sure that some of those monies get in the hands of minoritized individuals so that, you know, it's it's to Dr. McMichael's point of, of the people who are 
studying and involving themselves much more strategically than we are. So now we need to be educated in that same playbook so that we are asking in the questions, so that we are showing up at the right table, so that we are making sure that people who have been left out and left behind, those for whom I believe Jesus came, have an opportunity. Amen. Well, I want to thank you both for uh, being a part of this conversation today and for your contributions to In This Together and uh, for your ongoing work and witness. Thank you. Good to be a part of the discussion with you and uh, with my good friend, Dr. Deborah Jackson. Likewise, this has been a real treat. So I thank you. And Dr. McMichael, may your ministry continue to thrive and grow. And yours, my sister. Thank you. And I want to thank you for being a part of this uh, conversation. Um, If you'd like to engage this conversation further, I encourage everyone who's listening to post questions and comments on the In This Together Facebook page at Ministry in Times of Crisis. The book is available from Judson Press, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Bookshop, among others. If you've already purchased a copy and have enjoyed it, Please leave us a review at Amazon or Goodreads. We would help uh, appreciate your support in getting the word out about the book. I also encourage you to visit uh, The Christian Citizen at christiancitizen.us, where you will find additional articles on a broad range of topics uh, by Dr. Deborah Jackson and Dr. Marvin McNichol, both of whom are contributing authors. Thank you for being a part of this conversation today. I invite you to join us for our next In This Together Tuesday, June 8th, with Matthew Previn, Margaret Marcusen, and Michael Wolf. Take good care, everyone. Look out for your, your neighbor, and let's continue on this path in this together. We look forward to seeing you again soon. At The Christian Citizen, we're passionate about justice, mercy, and faith. We produce award-winning content that is provocative, timely, and relevant. What started 25 years ago as a print-only publication is now a digital-first, multi-platform media brand. We've added an award-winning weekly e-newsletter, this podcast, and a growing presence on social media. Now, for the first time, we're adding a member support program, Christian Citizen Ambassadors. Learn more about how you can support our work at christiancitizen.us slash members. Thank you to this week's guests, Deborah Jackson and Marvin McMichael. Our theme music is I the Beholder by Fabian Tell. The Christian Citizen is edited by Curtis Ramsey Lucas and is a publication of the American Baptist Home Mission Societies. The show, website, and newsletter are produced by myself, Joshua Kagi. Stories are copy edited by Hannah Estefanos. Our art director is Danny Ellison. The Christian Citizen Editorial Board is Dr. Jeffrey Hagre, Laura Alden, Susan Gottschall, Dr. Jeffrey Johnson, the Reverend Salvador Oriana, the Reverend Dr. Marilyn Turner Triplett, the Reverend Cassandra Karkoff Williams. And our advisors are Sherilyn Crow, the Reverend Kimberly Payton Jones, the Reverend Stephen D. Martin, the Reverend Marvin A. McMichael, and the Reverend Harold Dean. To learn more about the Christian Citizen, visit our website, ChristianCitizen.us. That concludes this episode of Justice, Mercy, Faith. Thanks for listening.